0: I mean, we didn't know what was gonna happen. And then now he planted two churches. And so really what I want to say is anything you get out of today, you're welcome, okay? <coughs> uh, So all that to say is uh, everything I just said is actually uh, in reverse. So I've known Justin for 12 years. He's pretty much been uh, one of my key disciples and mentors in this whole thing. He brought me into Redemption uh, Tempe as an intern like seven years ago or something. And so a lot of what we've been able to do here has come from the direct ministry and investment from this guy. So we are uh, really, really blessed to have him. I'm going to pray for him in Redemption San Francisco, and then uh, anything he says about me is not true. Let's go. God, thank you. Thanks for this guy. Thanks for the memories. It is a really neat moment for me to be here. Uh, I mean, just having him as a boss and as a friend in all the different capacities. Got to have him here to, to preach to us and shape us and make us look more like Jesus this morning, I'm thankful. So, Lord, would you bless him, bless his church this morning. Thanks so much for them and them allowing him to come out here and be with us. And so, God, would they hear from the Lord? Would they be shaped by the gospel? And, God, would you do the same thing? Holy Spirit, we ask that you illuminate, that you shape us. And, God, in everything we do, everything we hear, and especially as we respond, God, would you be glorified today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Thanks, man. Thank you, thank you. It really is cool to be here. I met Vince, <clears throat> gosh, I told Vince that uh, anything he says, I'm quick on my feet and I can return it to him uh, tenfold, so uh, he, he was too gracious and I'm kind of tongue-tied now, I wasn't expecting him to be nice. Um, but uh I, I love Vince a lot and, and Verity and Finn and their whole deal. Uh they are uh they are some of my favorite people. Uh Vince introduced me to my wife. Uh he interned for me in San Diego, interned for me in Phoenix, has done every job you could imagine, uh, has done many of them well and uh and is one of my one of my favorite people to be around. So it, it really uh, it I'm as, as patronizing as this can sound. I hope it doesn't. But I am so proud of him. Uh, Vince, I'm proud of you. Uh, I don't have to talk about you in the third person. You're right here. Uh, this feels like like seeing my grandchildren or something. Like this is. Uh, I just uh, yesterday was my birthday. I turned 36. I'm too. I'm too young to have grandchildren. Uh, no, there's nothing interesting about 36. Thank you for the claps. Actually, that amount of clapping is probably the appropriate amount of clapping for 36. Oh, 30, okay. You know. <laughs> so, uh, so it. it, it feel, I feel too young to have grandchildren, but this is what it feels like. So this is, uh, this is just super exciting. I'm I'm thankful for what what's happening here at what we called in Tempe for a long time, Red Flag. I don't know if you still call it that, uh, but because uh, it was a huge red flag, uh, this whole endeavor. So uh, it seems to be going much better than we ever could have dreamed, right, Vince? So. Uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. Jesus, thank God for Jesus. Right? Um, this morning, we're going to continue in the Advent series that you all have been in. Uh, I'm thankful to to have a chance to uh, preach this message. Uh, when Vince asked me to come, kind of gave me a sense of what um, I was going to be preaching on. I, I I've been uh, I've been preaching now for about twelve years full time. Uh, all, all the ministry stuff I've done. So the one thing I've learned is. <clears throat> the, the more times you can recycle a message, the better it gets, right? And so um, before I moved from Tempe to uh, San Francisco, I was preaching five services, which was awesome because the first service was like a warm-up, right? And so those people never got saved. And, uh, but then it just got progressively better as the day went on, right? And so like the evening services were just killer. Everyone got saved every week, and, uh, and it was awesome. So when Vince told me what I was preaching on, I thought, great. I'll, I'll figure out my Advent series to be like one week later than your Advent series. So, so you guys get the warm-up sermon that I'll then preach at my church next week. So you're hoping for the opposite, huh? No one's getting saved this morning, all right? <laughs> No idea what I'm talking about. Okay, here's what, here's what I'm going to do. Um, I want to start where, where Vince uh, uh, kind of left off last week. So um, I want you all to turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you can do that for me, if you have a Bible. Um, do we give out Bibles here, Vince, for those who need them? Great. Um, if you need a Bible, slip up your hand. Uh, Andrew, one of the uh, helpers, interns, uh, will, will get you a Bible. Uh, so keep those hands up. Um, if you don't own a Bible, keep this one. It's on Vince. Uh, If you do want a Bible and you just forgot yours today, uh, go ahead and give it back and and bring your Bible to church. Okay, it's church, right? There's one place you should feel all right bringing your Bible. It's this one, okay? So you guys go to Matthew 5. I'll meet you there. I'm going to get there. Um, One of the key passages that Vince used uh, last week to talk about the kingdom, to introduce this idea of the kingdom, is Mark chapter 1. Verses 14 and 15. It's one of my favorite passages um, in the scripture, actually. And so if you weren't here last week, don't worry. Um, I'll sum up uh, uh, Vince's sermon for you very quickly. Uh, Verse 14 Says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, This was the first thing out of Jesus' mouth uh, in his new ministry. He says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So the time is fulfilled is a hint at the fact that the entire Old Testament and really all of human history is, is climaxing at this moment of Jesus coming on the scene. So he goes, All the prophets, all the time, all the experiences, all the story, all the exodus, all of it, is being fulfilled now. The the stopwatch is at zero, and I'm here. Okay, so the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and and this is what we're going to get into. Um, And then he says, the response, or the, the right response to the fact that the time is fulfilled, and the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand, the right response is, repent and believe the gospel, Right? And so I I don't know if Vince used this last week or not, but the illustration I always use for this idea of repent and believe in the gospel is this. We spend our lives walking in this direction, right? We, We choose our values, we choose our ethics, we choose what matters to us, and all of that kind of shapes the life we live, right? So Jesus comes and goes, you've been walking this way, pursuing these ends, these are the things that are valuable, these are the things that matter, these are the things I'm going to give my life and time to, Jesus comes and says, okay, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, the true kingdom is here, now repent, which is, your life has been going this way, repent is this, turn. Turn. Right, literally means to turn away from, repent from, is to go, okay, I thought forever that these were the things that mattered, these were the ends I should pursue, this is what I should give my life and time and money to, and I was wrong. And so what I'm realizing now is, Since the kingdom of God is at hand and I see it clearly, it's actually these things that matter. It's actually these things that are worth giving my life to. These things that I should give my time and energy and thought and money to. And so Jesus says, repent, which is turn, and then believe the gospel is, okay, now walk in this new vision for life. Right? So this is the first thing out of Jesus' mouth when he arrives on the scene to do ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand. So therefore, these things don't matter anymore. It's these things that matter. So repent and believe the gospel. Okay? At the end of Jesus' life in ministry, in John, and you don't have to turn there, maybe just make a mental note, John chapter 18, John 18, verse 36, Jesus before Pilate, says this, or Pilate says, uh, Am I a Jew? Your own nation, chief priests, have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Right? This is Pilate's answer. He's a Roman power, says to Jesus, What have you done? Why are you standing accused before me? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from this world. Right? So stop. The beginning of Jesus' ministry, the first thing out of his mouth, the big promise is the kingdom of God is at hand. All of human history has tracked forward to this moment and now I have arrived, the kingdom has arrived, and I will now devote the remaining years of my life to establishing and bringing about this kingdom. That's the promise. And now we get to the end of Jesus' life and he's standing before Pilate and Pilate goes, well, where's your kingdom? And Jesus goes, yeah, so uh, my kingdom's not of this world. My, my kingdom's of a different world. If my kingdom were of this world, my, I mean, I would have, we'd be fighting right now. My servants would be fighting for me. And it, it, it's a little bit of a head-scratcher moment where you're looking and go, is Jesus, did Jesus get to the end of his ministry and And, and now that, now that the people are questioning him about his big kingdom, he's going, "Yeah, well, my kingdom. I, yeah, I mean, I got a kingdom, but it's just not of this world, right? It's like I, I had a buddy in high school who had a girlfriend from out of town, right? No, she's hot, man, but she just doesn't live here, you know. So I don't get to see her much. You'll meet her someday, I promise. Imagination, right? Like." Is it, so is this Jesus having his girlfriend from out of town moment? Does Jesus have a, have a fake girlfriend that he tells us in Mark chapter 1, dude, I met this girl, she's super hot, you'll meet her. Man, she's awesome, she's all about me. She's like French and stuff. And then you get to the end and you go, oh, yeah, but, yeah, you know, we broke up. I just was over. This feels kind of weird. We, we see Jesus do ministry for three years and never really deliver on his promise or at least what we what we were hoping we would see when we heard and read mark 1 14 and 15 the kingdom of god is at hand all of human history is tracked to this moment and now i'm here so reorient your life i mean think about the call jesus makes in the his first sermon all of human history has come to this moment a new kingdom is at hand. Now reorient your life completely to this new kingdom. Those are high expectations. And now we get to the end, and Jesus stands before Pilate and goes, Yeah, 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 I have a kingdom, but it's just not of this world. If I had a kingdom of this world, then my servants would be fighting for me, but this isn't my kingdom. So, uh, now, now I want to I meet you in Matthew chapter 5. Because something really interesting happens in between those two moments that I think will frame up for us why we see Jesus in front of Pilate at the end of his ministry, talking about the fact that his kingdom is not of this world. Matthew chapter 5 is known uh, popularly as the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount starts with um, what we call the Beatitudes. Okay, So I want to read the Beatitudes for you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is the longest recorded sermon of Jesus, the longest recorded monologue of Jesus of, of any kind. And it's really interesting because we, we often um, break it up and kind of digest the Sermon on the Mount in little pieces, and so we take the part uh, about retaliation, we take the part about lust, or we learn about the part about divorce, or we learn about the part about just all the various different pieces, um, when in fact, really, five chapters into Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, before a crowd that some estimate to be in the tens of thousands, um, delivers this manifesto for what his kingdom is like. Now, I, I, I think if, if we haven't been um, in kind of churchified or indoctrinated with the church and we can just kind of get fresh eyes on the beatitudes we would read through this and read Jesus say blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn blessed are the meek blessed are the merciful blessed are the pure in heart blessed are peacemakers for they shall be called sons of god we might look at this um this manifesto especially the beatitudes and our initial response if we're honest and we haven't been kind of churchified um, would be what my son would say Uh uh-uh. No, it's not. Like if we just took the Beatitudes at face value and went, blessed are the poor in spirit. When? Blessed are the meek? In what world? Blessed are the peacemakers? No. Peacemakers are those who lose wars. So there's a there's an aspect to Jesus's manifesto here for his kingdom that just doesn't quite square with our experience, and and here's why. See, we live in a world where there are many competing kingdoms. In fact, um, I I don't know how many of you have read or are watching the Game of Thrones series thing. Yeah. Um, This is why I think Game of Thrones is popular. Um, Besides the good writing, um, the great story, the perfect acting, and for some, the nudity, um, the, the the success of Game of Thrones is that it rings true to our experience of the world, right? Like in the first two seasons, I don't want to ruin anything for you, but I'm gonna ruin something for you the um in the first two seasons um the the king dies right this this the main kind of king guy dies and um as a result there are four or five other guys competing um for the throne and they're all kind of gathering their armies and making alliances and trying to all end up on the iron throne so there's all these battles and all these political movements and all these things all trying to rule over this land and so um, when Jesus comes on the scene and says the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel Jesus is essentially throwing his hat in the ring to be the king He's saying, okay, I I know that um, there have been a bunch of different competing kingdoms, some political, actual kingdoms, some ideological kingdoms, but there are a bunch of different ways and a bunch of different people and a bunch of different ideas and a bunch of different things that are competing for the throne in your life. And Jesus shows up on the scene and says, the kingdom is here, and he goes so far as to say, the kingdom of God is here. And so we have the opportunity to look at the Sermon on the Mount kind of backwards through the lens of the cross. So when you come to Redemption Church, you hear about the gospel, you hear about the cross, you hear about the end of the story of Jesus' ministry. And so we we have to look back on the sermon on the mount through the lens of what Jesus did on the cross but when Jesus showed up and just kind of planted his flag and said there's a new king in town there's a new person vying for the throne for for domination on the world's on the world scene for for the right to be king over you and king over all None of the people he's talking to knew anything about the cross. And so all they're hearing is another person who's trying to establish a claim to the throne. And so what's really interesting about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount is, um, almost at a, at a political level, this is, this is like a stump speech. Like this, this is Jesus out on the campaign trail, right? He's like on a train, hops off the train, he's got his banners and flags, and he's going, listen, this is what I'll do if I get elected. This is what my kingdom would be like. You've you got all these other kind of kingdoms that are vying for power, vying for your attention. This is what my kingdom would be like. And it's almost as if he's trying to win the hearts of the people um, by talking about the issues, right, if this were a political situation. He's trying to describe for them a world that they might look at, because they don't really know Jesus. We're five chapters in. He's done very few miracles. He's got very little reputation. He certainly hasn't gone to the cross, and he absolutely hasn't been resurrected from the dead, which are like the tricks he's, he's waiting to unveil before any of that comes out, before they know that this is a man who claims to be the Son of God, he goes, let me describe for you my kingdom. Let me describe for you. If, if you listen to what I say my, in my first sermon, kingdom of God, repent and believe, this is what awaits you. And, and I would argue it's a, it's a pretty winsome vision. Because so he goes from the Beatitudes to talking about anger and talking about lust and talking about oaths and retaliation and loving your enemies and giving to the needy and a, a connection that we could have to God through prayer, that, that there's more to this world than just what we see today, that we can actually lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. And the, Essentially, Jesus is going, this, the world that you see around you, these competing kingdoms, That's it's not your only option. And I think as important a message as that was for those people to hear then, it's just as important for us to hear now. So I, I started thinking, what, what are some of those competing kingdoms? What are some of those kingdoms that, that are vying for the throne in your life individually, but also vying for the throne of our culture and our world? And, and of course there's many, right? But I think there's, there's a few that will ring true somewhat universally. One is money, right? Right? There's a kingdom that, that, that's currency is, is stuff and the power and influence that comes with stuff and the values of that kingdom are to get more and more and more and more. Right? And we, we orient, I mean, uh, uh, most of you, I mean, you're in Flagstaff. How many, in fact, raise your hand if you're a college student, even a grad student. Right, so you're poor. And so you're going, yeah, well, I haven't fallen into the money kingdom trap yet, right? But not by choice, right? It's because they won't let you in. You're like banging on the kingdom door and they're like, too poor, right? So you've oriented your schooling around this idea, though. Many of you have chosen majors because they will result in professions that will give you the money that you want. And really, money isn't the end. Money is the means to the end. Usually the end is either power, or it's comfort, or it's ease, or it's reputation. It's, it's a bunch of different things. Money is never the end. It's just the means to an end. Sometimes it's just the means to pleasing your parents, or making them proud of you, or getting attention. I mean, it's a, there's a million things, right? But I was wondering to myself, what if, there were, what if each of these kingdoms wrote their own beatitudes, And they were honest about it, right? And so I I wrote some Beatitudes, some for money, some for these other kingdoms. For money, blessed are the money makers, for theirs is all the nice stuff. Seems honest. Blessed are the stingy, for they keep what is rightfully theirs. And see, what's funny about the money kingdom is that we don't want to admit, like, there's very few people, I had a buddy in high school who was, was kind of hilarious, that he was like, a, a, maybe like a tenth Jewish, but he would always blame his money desires on him being Jewish, he's like, I can't help it, right, uh, fiddler on the roof. So uh, he would, uh, he, he was pretty, like, unqualified, and like, I want a job that I can make a lot of money in. But most of us aren't that way. In fact, I saw the, the most recent cover of ESPN, the magazine, has Carmelo Anthony on it, right, with his entourage. He's kind of strolling through Manhattan this way. And there's a little quote at the bottom. If you, I'm going to probably mess up the quote because I was just remembering it this morning. But is, he said something like, People say I'm all about money, but it's actually all about the appearance of success. And I read that, and I, at first I was like, oh, he's defending himself. I'm like, oh, wait a second, that's, that's not better. It's like, I'm not about money. People say I'm all about money. I'm just about appearing to be successful. Oh, oh, well, since you put it that way, Carmelo, right? Like, How is that better? I, I want money. He's saying, I, I do want money, but not as an end. I want it so that everyone can look at me and think I'm successful. And I thought, that is a ridiculous quote that I would be angry that made it on the front of ESPN the magazine. And yet, how true that is for so many of us. I don't actually just care about the money as long as I appear successful. Okay, so some of us get wrapped up into a money kingdom. Some of us get wrapped up into a kingdom of sex and sexuality. We're all in college, right? Well, you are. I was once. This is a, a, a pretty primary piece of the college experience. And it doesn't stop in college. It, it takes on new forms. It becomes more subtle. It becomes more about power sometimes. But um, sexuality is one of our most powerful kingdoms in our world. And it's, and it's one of the most powerful temptations in our lives to succumb to the vision of the kingdom of sexuality which is a kingdom of experience. It values feeling. And, and, and here's how I know that, that sexuality is, is not about people. It's not about, it's not about actual experience because the pornography industry, as we have, I'm sure, been quoted a million times, makes more money annually than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. It's not about people. It's about an experience. It's often about power. It's about a lot of things. But, but there's, a, there's a sweetness to it. There's a seduction to it, isn't there? That promises so much. It's a, there's this strange, strange thing in the kingdom of sexuality that there is a, there are two messages about sexuality in this kingdom and they are, uh, hypocritically, uh, paradoxical. Right? How's that for a mouthful? Right? So you've got, on the one hand, the kingdom of sexuality is saying, hey, sex is no big deal. It's just fun. It's not a big deal. Like stop making such a big deal about it. But on the other hand, it's a huge deal, and you need to have as much of it as possible. It's really the most important thing. If if you haven't had a lot of sex, if you're not getting a lot of sexual experience, then you're really missing out on this thing that's not that big a deal. I mean, it's just like people, it's bodies, it's physical. It's just fun. I mean, we're consenting adults doing the most important thing in the world. And so I'm going to build my advertising because I know that it is so central to the human experience to have this activity, to do this activity that's just not that big a deal and let's have fun. Competing, hypocritical, paradoxical and yet they are being sold to us as equals. So blessed is he who sleeps around for he will have great stories to tell. Blessed is she who gives herself away easily, for she will have the attention of men. Blessed are you who have many notches on your bed, for you will be revered. That's the honesty of that kingdom. It's about power. It's dehumanizing. But it's so seductive. But I think the kingdom that, that might be the most powerful one in our world that we face on a daily basis, and, and here's why I think it's so powerful because it's the most invisible, the easiest to laugh off, the easiest to poke fun at and continue to do. But it's the kingdom of me, it's my kingdom. And, and this kingdom, the it traffics and the values of this kingdom are exposure, attention. The currency of the kingdom of me are Facebook friends, Instagram likes, and comments. And it is absolutely pervasive, isn't it? And, and it's so easy for a pastor to come up, get up, and, you know, like, talk about, oh, Instagram is this, and Twitter, it's just narcissistic, and everybody goes, ha, I'm going to tweet that, right? Like, that, that was a good line. But I know personally the anxiety that comes, the rush that you feel when you post something to Twitter, you post something to Instagram, or whatever the next thing is that I'm too old to know about. And you, 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 you get that ding on your phone, or you check it, right, knowing, hey, I bet you there's going to be a bunch more likes. Oh my gosh, she commented on it. Right? Blessed is he who has many followers, for he also will have many likes. Blessed is she who filters well, for her life will be well envied. Blessed are those who have more than a thousand Facebook friends. Yours is the comfort that you are well liked. For me, social media is, and I, I have a long-standing totally hypocritical love hate relationship with social media i've quit it several times i have i have traded in my smartphone for dumb phones many times and gone back and gone back and gone back and the love hate relationship i have with it is that i understand i understand the argument it can be this tool for connectivity and for resources and platform and all this and yet i know my heart Longs for those likes. Longs to, to be able to have a moment like I did the other day to just casually mention that I have um, you know, 1,200 Twitter followers, 700 Instagram followers. <laughs> but I, I mean, I don't follow that many people, right? Like, I don't even follow anybody on Instagram. I follow like 17 people on Twitter. I mean, it's not a big deal. But I know like I know what that feeds for me and I know what that feeds for my heart. I, I know that, that longing, I know that disappointment where I post something I think, like, oh this is going to be hilarious. And then I get nothing. And I cry. <laughs> the kingdom of me is 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 the most difficult kingdom to, to break out of. The most king, it's the most difficult kingdom to even, to even see, right? It's, it's the water that's all around us. It's what we swim in. It's what we know. It's so hard to detach ourselves and to be able to see it really for what it is. Until we read something like the Sermon on the Mount. And see that the Sermon on the Mount is a coordinated attack on the values of these kingdoms. That Jesus, 2,000 plus years ago, knows that these words, this vision for a new kingdom, will be a shot across the bow for every other kingdom. That these values will undermine all of these kingdoms. That Jesus, when he says, lay up treasure for yourself in heaven and not on this earth, because on earth, the treasure you have, moth and rust will destroy, but in heaven, moth and rust cannot destroy the treasure that you have. In other words, I mean, if you build up and all of your treasure is here, it'll burn up. It'll go away. It's fleeting. But there's something more and greater that's everlasting. And he knows that that will undercut the kingdom of money in uh, 33 AD as much as it will in 2014. When he says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, that that cut to the heart of 30-year-old men, 20-year-old men in 33 AD in togas and sandals as much as it does guys today in flannel and sandals. The moment changes. The kingdoms rarely do. And so we read the Sermon on the Mount as this coordinated attack on these alternate kingdoms talking about what matters and what doesn't matter that undercuts the values and the currency and the importance of these other kingdoms and it all culminates where well, I want you to go in chapter 6, verse 25 of Matthew. Jesus starts by saying, therefore, and my youth pastor once taught me that any time you see a therefore, it's there for a reason, right? Brilliant. But therefore is always a culminating word. It's always, okay, in light of everything that I just said, therefore. This so here's Jesus therefore after um, uh, this Sermon on the Mount. It says, "Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air; they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they?" Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, saying, "What shall we eat?" or "What should we drink or what shall we wear?" For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Uh, before we get into why that matters for us, can we just take a moment in this advent season? You know, in, in a few minutes, Pastor Vince is going to come back up and, and he's going to talk about an Advent offering and a way that you can give out of your abundance to help people in need. So let's just acknowledge for this moment that when Jesus preaches Matthew six twenty five through 34, the primary concerns of his audience were what? Food, drink, clothing. And not like style, but like whether they'd have them. I'm not going to have anybody raise their hand, but I would be really curious when the last time we worried about whether or not we were going to have food, drink, or clothing. We worry all the time about whether our food and drink is organic and locally sourced, and we have the luxury to be able to do that. And we worry all the time about what our clothes look like and whether they're up to date and the fashion's okay. Is this going to be good for church? Is it you know, too conservative? Is it, you know, where, where am I at on this? But let's at least acknowledge and thank God that those are the questions that we have and the conviction that something like this brings is at that level and not at this level. Jesus is saying to these people, Stop worrying about whether you're going to have food or not. God's going to take care of you. Stop worrying about whether or not you're going to have clothes on your back. Do you think God doesn't know you need those things? And so for us, I mean, we, it, it would be easy to go, well, yeah, I'm not worried about those things, so I'm good. No, we're not worried about those things, which means we've got to work a little harder to see what Jesus is saying to us here. The, the heart, what, what lies at the heart, the, the feeling here that Jesus is trying to get at, really is, is separate from the, the actual application. So um, what they were feeling is fear. Right? I mean, that, that's at the heart of Jesus saying, do not worry, do not be anxious. Right? Well, what is worry and anxiety? At, at its root, it's fear. So Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. And their application was because they didn't have food and they didn't have drink and they didn't have clothes. So that's not us. But the the fundamental fear and anxiety and worry is absolutely us. And so Jesus, in his manifesto, his kingdom vision that he's laying out for the people to see before they see the miracles, before they see the cross, before they see the resurrection, Jesus is building his resume simply on his ideas for the kingdom, and he goes, listen, in my kingdom, if I'm your king, if you repent and believe and follow me... This is what life can be like. And so he unpacks this whole thing and says, Therefore, because of all that, because I'm a good king, because all these things are true, in my kingdom, where the the meek are blessed and the righteous are, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, in, in this kingdom, you don't need to have worry. You don't need to have anxiety. You don't need to have fear. Which, I don't know about you, but that's hard for me to believe. I don't know about you, but I would say there's a pretty significant portion of my life that's driven by fear. That fear is one of the most primary emotions that I feel. So when Jesus says, don't be anxious, don't worry, I go, great, how? how is that possible? Whenever I read this verse, and I don't know why, and I'm finally in a place where, where this illustration works, and so I have to use it, right? Because I've been preaching in San Diego, Phoenix, and now San Francisco, so ice metaphors are like, what? Like, we're we talking about soda? I, so, so I got an ice illustration that I have to use here, right? Every time I read this, and Jesus talks about anxiety and fear and do not worry, I picture what it's like to walk on ice. Right? When you walk on ice and where, you know, it just snowed, and it's all packed down, and it's the next day, and so it kind of melted during the, like at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, but then the next, at that night, it kind of refroze, it's super slippery. How do you walk on ice? Do you walk on ice like this? No. That's how you walk into a club. How do you walk on ice? You walk on ice like this. Right? Or at least that's how people from Phoenix walk on ice. I'm sure you guys got it figured out. But like us Phoenicians and San Franciscans walk on ice like this full of anxiety and fear, full of trepidation. Full of worry, knowing that at any moment, if my balance gets off, I'm literally looking like I'm planning my route from thing to thing to cling to. Door, human, baby, dog, whatever it is that will keep me from falling down. I walk in constant fear of being on YouTube accidentally, right? And so this is, this is what I picture. Like, do not be anxious. Jesus is saying, do not be anxious about anything, except that we live in a world that is an ice patch. That is constantly trying to knock us down, knock us off balance, throw us for a loop, and and as we walk through that ice patch, these competing kingdoms are constantly offering a hand to us to go, hey, I I know life's crazy, so reach out to me, I'm money. I know life's crazy, so find, you're feeling powerless, so find your power in sex. I, I know that you're feeling unsure about who you are and your place in this world, so here's Instagram, and my number of likes can make me feel stable on this ice patch. But Jesus goes, listen, I know the world's jacked, I know it's broken, I, I'm there, I'm in it with you, but you can walk confidently through the ice patch. Do not worry, do not be anxious, don't feel like you've got to reach out this whole time for other things to keep you up, to keep you off YouTube. How in the world can Jesus do that? Because in my mind, there is no sweeter promise that I've ever hurt. than to be able to go through life without worrying? I got three kids, and I got one on the way. And um, I don't know why. (sighs) I mean, I know like how it happened. I get the science. But, um, and I love children, man. I love children. I love being a dad. Absolutely adore most of my children some of the time and I, I, I get it like I'm pro kid so don't take this as an excuse to never grow up okay buddy Steve stop okay so here's the thing like there is a, there is a there is one aspect to having kids that just is the worst and it's fear because here's what happened you're walking along an ice patch and someone hands you a baby and you're going Oh, crap. So you get married, and it's like kind of sweet, because now it's like, okay, we're in this together, so if we fall, it's like, ha kiss, right? So, but now, now you've got a baby in your arms, and then you've got another baby on your arm, and then you've got one on your head, and you're just trying to make it through without dropping a baby falling on a baby or letting, and then they want to walk and then you're worried about them. I mean, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> and so when Jesus comes to me and says, you can have a life free from anxiety and worry, I go, sign me up. You mean I don't have to make my decisions based on what I'm less fearful of? You mean know, I don't have to have that constant knot in my stomach about what's going to happen to my kids. Am I going to have enough money to send them to college? Who are they going to be? Why does my son keep licking people? Why does why this? Why, you know, like, am I ever, is it ever going to be okay? I mean, forget the cross. Forget the resurrection. I'll just take this. So I read read this promise, I read this therefore, and I go, man, sign me up for a life without fear, a life without anxiety, a life without worry. But there is something that nags in the back of my head to go, come on, I'm 36 years old, I'm not old yet, but I'm old enough to know that a promise like this is, pretty hard to deliver on. Because here's what else has happened. As I've walked through the ice patch of life and other things, other kingdom, other people have reached out to say, hold on to me and it'll be okay. I've reached out. And I've held on. And when I started to fall, they didn't hold me up. And so as many followers and likes and and attention, as many sexual experiences, as much money and power, none of it, in the end, delivered on its promise. And so I'm jaded. I'm cynical. So I hear a promise like this and I go, how in the world are you going to deliver on that promise, Jesus? I'd love to see that kingdom, but I don't know that I buy it. Jesus says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. At the foundation of Jesus' promise, at the foundation of uh, his vision for his kingdom and the values and the ethics and, and what that kingdom could be like. At the foundation of it all is the one who sits on the throne. Right? like th- There can be a fantastic vision. You can have a king or a potential king who's a, an incredible orator and can make these grand promises, who can paint a beautiful picture and, and, and promise to be able to deliver on this new world. If you'll just elect him, if you'll just put him in the throne, he will deliver on it, and you did, and he failed. Or you looked at him and you went, you know, he's a really good speaker, and he's really good looking, and I would love to have his life, or her life, but I just don't know if he can pull it off. I don't trust that he can deliver on that message. I like the message, I like the vision, but there's something missing. There's something that is lacking in his power or her ability or, or her. Like, there, there's just a disconnect between what they say they can do and what they can deliver on. What I, I really believe they can deliver on. Which is why um, we can't dismiss the cross and we can't dismiss the resurrection. And before even that, we can't dismiss Genesis one and two. I mean, the, the only thing that makes this vision go is the fact that Jesus said, "I am the alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer and the finisher. I am all those things." And we go, wow, that's a big, that's a big claim," Jesus." And he goes, "Just wait. And he starts to do miracles. And he walks on water. And he feeds 5,000. And he raises the dead. And he heals the lame. And he opens the eyes of the blind. And we start to go, okay, well, I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, that's better than the last guy. But, I mean, I'm still not sure about this entire kingdom without worry, without fear. How could I possibly do that? And Jesus goes, watch this. Cross, which is my sacrifice for you. So you know that I love you. That all of this vision is for you. That you could never doubt my desire for you. You could never doubt my desire to see you thrive. My, you could never doubt my, my desire, the, the, the fact that I will go to any ends for you. You never doubt that. I mean, if there's one thing that we can never doubt of Jesus is whether or not He loves us. Like he has has demonstrated the greatest amount of love that he could ever demonstrate. When, When we have those moments where we go, I don't know, I mean, does Jesus love me? He didn't give me this. I just imagine Jesus in heaven going like, I died for you. Not in like a guilt, like what more do you want from me? But like, what more could you ask from me? To demonstrate my love for you. I went to the cross for you. I became sin for you. I didn't just bear the consequences of your sin, but I actually became sin. I took it upon myself to demonstrate my love for you. And then if we go, well, okay, that's great, but I think my mom would die for me. I don't know that she'd become sin for me, but she'd at least die for me. Jesus goes, great, not only am I all loving, but I'm powerful too. And he raises on the third day so I, you can't doubt my love for you you can't doubt my power to deliver so in the, in the same way these other kingdoms have failed you in that they realize once you grabbed hold of them they weren't really for you they were for themselves and they were using you and as much as you've discovered that when you grabbed onto them and then slipped and fell they crumbled under your weight and so they weren't powerful enough to deliver on their promises? Jesus has demonstrated both. And so, in this Advent season, as we stand between Jesus' first Advent and His second, the first coming and His second, we live in between, we live in the midst of His kingdom. So, as Jesus stood before Pilate and said, My kingdom is not of this world, he was telling the truth, wasn't he? This wasn't just a, a, an out-of-town girlfriend kind of excuse for failure. This was Jesus going, listen, the kingdom that I have inaugurated, the kingdom that I have begun, the kingdom that I have demonstrated, and the kingdom that I'm about to die and be raised for is not a kingdom that finds its source here. It's it's not a kingdom that that began here, that generated from here. It's a kingdom that that finds its source in heaven. It's a kingdom that finds its source in me. It's a kingdom that finds its beginning and its end and its culmination and its possibility and its everything in me. So Jesus goes, listen, I, I, I give you the vision... I'll sell you all day on the ideas because I created this world to be this way. It's not just that I'm going to create this alternate little subculture where the the meek are blessed. He goes, I'm telling you, I made this world in such a way that the meek ought to be blessed. That the meek will be blessed. That the meek are blessed. That's how I made this place. And I've demonstrated, I've created these little pockets of the kingdom of God, these little moments where the the veil was pulled back and you're able to see, wow, that's the way it's supposed to be. Because I've done that for you. I've demonstrated for you. And and I'm about to die and be raised and send the Spirit so that you can live out the kingdom of God too and create these moments when you walk out my kingdom vision by the power of my Spirit, by the grace poured out on the cross. When you walk out this kingdom vision, you too can pull the veil back. And so the world around you can see the way the world is supposed to be. That's the promise the promise of mark 1 14 and 15 it's the promise described in the sermon on the mount it's the promise sealed in the cross and the resurrection and it's the promise that we look forward to in this advent season for when jesus comes back and restores all things to this kingdom vision amen amen let's pray Jesus, thank you that you are the beginning, the middle, and the end. You are the source of our life. You are the one that opens our eyes to see what that life can be. To help us see the possibilities that we live blinded from. And Lord, that you don't just open our eyes to see what we're missing and then walk away and not enable us to actually experience it. It's not just a tease. It's not just a goal to attain that if we were really good, if we were really righteous, if we really had our lives figured out, then we would actually be able to live this life. You're not pointing us to something alone, but you are walking us there. That you have opened the door for us to enter the gates into your kingdom today and every day. So Lord, I I know that there are people here who have never seen your kingdom, have never walked in your kingdom, are deeply skeptical that such a kingdom could exist. And yet, yet in their heart, there is a desire, a passion, a longing for such a kingdom. You have put that longing in all of us. So Lord, I, I pray this morning that you would reveal yourself so powerfully to all of us. Because for, for, for many of us, we have tasted the kingdom. We have walked through its doors, and yet on a daily basis, willingly walk back out of your kingdom. in the way that we live and move, the experience that we have, we are forever yours, and yet the, the lives that we live show loyalty to other kingdoms. So, Lord, help us to taste the sweetness of your kingdom in such a way that we never, ever want to leave. We see the other kingdoms for what they really are. And we walk faithfully with you by your power and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, now, always, as always, we'll move into a time of response.